Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and... Sean Kernickian. Hi, Sean. Hello, Brian. So we try to come to you every week, and almost every week, the purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with a little update on legal issues that affect uh, the plaintiff's bar, predominantly in California, predominantly focused on cases that come down from the California Court of Appeal, the California Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit, uh, the United States Supreme Court when they deal with an issue that's relevant and important to us. But today, we're going to take a little diversion on that, and we're going to talk about the Armenian Genocide and litigation and legislation that's come out of the Armenian Genocide. Yeah, we, we're, we try to do a little bit of bonus content, uh, shall we say, like we did the, we're, we're uh, sending out some interviews now that we did at Cala, and this one's going to be about the litigation rising out of the Armenian Genocide that I believe Brian was very closely involved in. I was very closely involved in this, and this is obviously very personal to me now. Probably everyone listening to uh, this podcast who hears the name Shant Karniki can figure out that Shant is Armenian, but I'm a half Armenian. My uh, my mother's Armenian. My grandparents were survivors of the Armenian Genocide. Yeah, this is something that's uh, close to heart for us, and it's. I was when we were preparing for this, I was remarking to Brian how really monumental this line of cases is and whatever they were able to accomplish with these cases really is. It's kind of like the closest thing we've ever seen to reparations and official recognition. Right. It also was at the time and continues to be the oldest case in the history of the United States jurisprudence from the date of the wrongful act or the event in in this case, oftentimes starting in 1915, to the resolution which occurred in the first decade of uh, this century and then the ongoing litigation. So it's been going on for 90 to 100 years, uh, and there's no other case you're ever going to find in American jurisprudence that probably goes back that far. So it's super exciting, historical significance. It involves political overtones. It involves the Hillary Clinton emails. So that's a little bit it of a taste of what we're going to talk about. the presidential administration of every president, including Ronald Reagan, all that's the right. way up to the present, uh, all the way up to uh, what what is currently happening with respect to Turkey and the Turks themselves and the Turkish government. Uh, and it involves uh, certainly what I would consider to be extremely strong feelings among anyone who identifies themselves as Armenian. Um, so let's start with a little bit of historical context. I'm, I am by no means a genocide scholar or a scholar of anything, really. Uh, but I did grow up hearing stories of the Armenian genocide. My maternal grandmother was a Danish missionary that uh, rescued orphans um, after the Armenian genocide. And, uh, you know, I, I did learn a little bit of this throughout growing up in, in both in school and in college and in my, my involvement in grassroots organizations like the ANCA. So in 19 1915, um, the Armenians were subjects of the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire is the predecessor of the uh, Republic of Turkey. They were not just subjects, they were subjugated people. So, right. you know, all of us have stories. Everyone who's Armenian has stories in their family. But uh, what we know is that they were subjugated people just like the Greeks, and the Ottoman Empire was losing its grip on the Ottoman Empire. It was falling apart. And also what was happening in 1915 was uh, the war was about to break out or had broken out, and there was a, a World War I was ongoing, and the Ottomans started to lose the grip on, on their empire. And in their empire, remember, this is a Muslim-based um, society, and the Armenians and the Greeks are Christian, and so there was immediately some distrust there between the, the, the ruling party 
and the subjugated people. And the Armenians were relatively successful and pretty well organized, so they drew uh, a bit of disdain from the Turks and the Turkish nationalists who really had a war cry of, you know, Turkey for the Turks, I think was the, um, when the Young young Turks, which was a smaller political faction and a really nationalist faction uh, was coming to coming into power, their, their war cry was Turkey for the Turks. Right, which has become a phrase today to refer, Young Turks is to refer to some some people who are young up and comers who feel their their roots, but at that time it was actually a political party, and it was a political party that was dedicated to making Turkey for Turks. And so, uh, what they did starting in 1915 uh, is they started a series of, of genocides that really started in what is now Istanbul at the time was Constantinople. On April 24, 1915, which is the day of remembrance that we now kind of consider, um, it, it does, it's not just a random day. It has historical sign- significance because it is fairly well documented that that is the day on which the um, Turks gathered the Armenian intellectuals, political leaders, cultural leaders, uh, religious leaders, and started to execute them or send them on death marches. But that's not where our story starts. Where our story really starts is in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, because most people don't know this, but there was a series of very small genocides where Turks would go into small villages in the countryside where the vast majority of Armenians lived and execute predominantly the men uh, and murder the men. And the smaller genocides in the late 1800s really gave rise to the business of insurance. Now, this this discussion we're having today, first of all, Sean, I could talk about this for hours because of my involvement, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, we're going to try to limit this to 30 minutes, so it's really an overview to give people a general idea. And secondly, I learned so much about what happened with the genocide and how the genocide came to be and and the facts and circumstances. And these early little mini-genocides that occurred in little villages were really the 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 motivating factor for insurance companies, life insurance companies, to come into the Ottoman Empire before 1915 and start selling insurance policies. So let's just stop the story right there. Yeah, yeah. That fact in and of itself to me is stunning because what was the world like before 1915? Right. It's kind of crazy that there was insurance policies being sold at that time. Well, there I think- were hardly any cars. Right. There was no air travel. It's pre-industrial there revolution. There was probably yeah. very little use of telephones. Telegraph may have been the predominant way to, tr- to communicate with people. Uh, and the world was so big because it was so difficult to travel. So you go through this and you realize that these insurance executives before 1915, before World War I, the turn of the century, decided, hey, there's disruption here in, in the Ottoman Empire. And uh, Christian Armenians might be good people who would be interested in buying life insurance. So that's kind of where this case starts. And 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 really, th- think about that. This is pre pre nineteen hundreds. This is in the late eighteen hundreds. It's called the Hamidian massacres. And in rural parts of the Ottoman Empire, not exactly developed industrialized places, they're selling insurance policies. So, um, what what type of companies were selling insurance policies back then? Well, a lot of Western insurance companies, and and the the insurance companies that we initially focused on in the litigation was first New York Life, which is obviously a U.S. based U.S. based company. So, again, before not to make this too much of a history lesson, but before 1915, the United States was not a world power. 
So, but they had decided to start selling life insurance. And and even if we want to take a little more of a detour, do you know where the original life insurance business came from? No. Slaves. Wow. Insuring slaves as property because not every slave ship made it to the shores and they would have shipwrecks or slaves would die and they would insure their lives as a commodity. While shipping them. Right. As a so commodity. Wow. from there, though, life insurance morphed into something that people would buy to take care of their families if something happened to them, as, as we now kind of know life insurance. So logistically, how did it work? How did selling insurance and collecting premiums and stuff work? Now you just pay your bill, you mail it somewhere, something like that. But but like we said, this isn't very, uh, we're not talking about advanced times. So it wasn't just New York Life. There were French companies, there were English companies, there were German companies, and we'll talk about Germany a little bit later. But these companies all were doing business in the Ottoman Empire. They weren't selling life insurance to Muslims because my understanding is that Muslims would not buy life insurance because it would violate the Quran to somehow insure the life of somebody. Uh, so the Christians were the ones who were most most likely to buy it, and they had a network set up of Armenians who were selling to Armenians, probably not much unlike the business of insurance today people in their own community selling to people in their own community. And they would literally, these were small policies, Sean. These were not large policies. So pre-1915, these companies, these Western companies, New York Life and AXA and other ones, are going around selling policies to Armenians living in the Ottoman Empire. It's like their prime market um, right. within the Ottoman Empire. And they'd be collecting premiums on maybe a weekly or monthly basis. They'd go from town to town. They'd collect their premiums. And then, as we all know, the Armenian genocide starts in 1915, and that's where you have, uh, I mean, a whole rich historical history there. But But people listening to this who don't have a working knowledge need to understand a couple of important facts. First... It's currently 2019 where we're recording this. Right. Over 100 years later, the Turkish government has not acknowledged the existence of the genocide. Um, another important fact, the United States government has not officially acknowledged uh, the Armenian genocide as a historical fact and um, is very cautious to use the term Armenian genocide. Right, because today the Turks deny it so significantly that if the United States – the United States government is convinced that if they recognize the genocide, they would have problems with Turkey where they've got an air base, a critical air base to the Middle East that's based in Turkey. Now, one thing about that air base that most people don't know is most of that air base is on historic Armenian lands, lands that belong to our ancestors. Yeah, and um, the, other implica- the other important thing to keep in mind is that 1.5 million Armenians – were massacred, and that's a very large percentage of the Armenian population at the time. And the remainder of the Armenians were effectively driven out of uh, what is now Eastern Turkey, what was Western Armenia historically. And they ended up in different parts of the world. A lot of them ended up in Syria. A lot ended up dying in the Derzor Desert in Syria. Um, the Syrian communities have now been relocated as a result of the war in Syria. They've been relocated to other places, but Syria left. Lebanon, uh, Iran, uh, more Western parts of the world, France. France. There's over half a million Armenians living in France. And of course, here in the United States, 
we probably now have a larger population of right. Armenians than living in what is now Armenia. So, so it's safe to say that post-1915, the Armenians didn't exactly kind of organically or voluntarily spread throughout the world. It was, it was a shock to them. And, and they've been dealing with these, these kind of wounds and the cultural and geopolitical shock of relocation since then, for the over 100 years since then. But what we do know is that there were efforts made right after the genocide, as these these people were being driven from their lands, there were efforts made to try to collect on insurance policies. And the insurance companies, New York Life included, an insurance company in France known as La Union Union La Vie de France, uh, Life Insurance Company of France, companies like this would – would set up artificial barriers for people to make their claims. Like what? Where's your death certificate? Well, I can assure you that the Turks, when they were slaughtering Armenians, were not handing out death certificates. Right. Or we need some proof that this person is no longer alive. We need something. And every time that somebody would try to come up with um, documentation to meet that level of proof, they'd move the goalpost. So we know that some claims to get paid – most did not get paid. And we also know that the tortured history of the Armenian people as they're being driven from their lands is that they were not able to um, chase down these claims and present these claims. So It's kind of hard to get organized and present like a concerted legal front when you, you know, your entire um, race effectively has been uh, relocated dramatically from one part of the world to the other. So Right. It was often the men that were killed and, of course – um, n- while we're not being sexist here, the reality of 1915 is that it was a male-dominated world, and the men probably ran the paperwork. And of course, when the, these these women and children were being driven out of their homes, they didn't say, "Do you mind if I get my insurance papers?" Yeah. So how, how, let's fast forward a little bit more to the let's say 1990s. Um, how do how do these cases start coming about to to you? Because I know you were well, personally first, involved in in all of these. Yeah. First, first. Um, let's go to very briefly what happened with the Holocaust-era cases. And, of course, the term genocide didn't exist at the time of the actual Armenian genocide. The word didn't exist. The word did not exist at the time of the Holocaust, where Nazis slaughtered not just Germans, but other people, that, uh, not just um, uh, Jews, but just other people that they viewed undesirable. And, and the term genocide was coined uh, by a scholar named Raphael Lemkin, is that right? Right. And it was coined in reference to what happened to the Armenians. And so in the 90s, um, people of Jewish descent who are now living in the United States were pursuing insurance claims. And of course, that 25-year difference between the Armenian genocide and the Holocaust is a significant period of time in you in the world history because things had become more modernized. There was more use of telephone. People were getting around more, and products like insurance were were much more available. And of course, many of the Jews that were slaughtered in the genocide were were smart, were educated, had bought insurance to protect themselves. So there were lots of insurance policies on on lives of Jews, and uh, an, a group of lawyers very smartly went and pursued those claims. So do credit to um, our Jewish colleagues out there who pursued those claims. But then we decided 
that we should take the same shot. Now, we didn't really know many of these insurance policies existed. I would think that if you go back to about even 1990, most people of Armenian descent would have no idea about these insurance policies except for Martin Marudian. Okay, and who is that? Martin Marudian was the original plaintiff, and he was the son of a woman whose brother died in the genocide. He grew up in New York City. He was born in the United States in, I believe, 1920 or so. And he was able to follow through on claims that his mother had tried to get paid for years. And that's what kind of prompted the first of these cases. Is that right? Right. So um, we filed these lawsuits, and we, meaning a lawyer named Varkasi Gayan, myself and later Mark Garagos got involved in these cases, we filed it against New York Life. And uh, it, we, we found that in filing the lawsuit against New York Life, there were several thousand insurance policies on Armenian lives that had never been paid. What obstacles did you run into that first time around with the Well, significant. Case? And one of the obstacles, obviously, that anyone listening to this who's a lawyer or who has any knowledge of law is going to immediately say is – Statute of limitations. Right. So we had gone to the legislature in California and we had passed a bill. And you're familiar with that bill. Yeah, that bill is, in two, first of all, it was passed in 2000. It's, it was, um, and we'll find out more what ended up happening to it, um, Section 354.4 um, of the California Code of Civil Procedure. And it, Do you happen to have the bill number there that it, that it came from, that it originated from? Let's see. I do not. I'll save the suspense. SB 1915. And that's significant because that's the year that the genocide began. Um, I had a I had a feeling it was that, but I don't I don't have it in front of me. Um, but anyway, this this statute specifically referred to um, Armenian genocide victims um, as Armenian genocide victims, not just as someone that perished during the period of 1915 to 1918 or something like that. And that is significant because, as Brian mentioned, the Republic of Turkey refuses to acknowledge the Armenian genocide, and the, uh, and the government of Un- the United States government refuses to use the term Armenian genocide. So to have a state legislature codify a bill extending the statute of limitations um, for decades and refer to what happened as the Armenian genocide and as the kind of the, the targets of this bill as the Armenian genocide victim is in and of itself a huge, huge accomplishment. And becomes very significant for our story a little bit later down the road. But I want to focus right now on the litigation against New York Life. So the statute of limitations argument is there, but you can revive a statute of limitations. U.S. law, Supreme Court law, allows you to revive a statute of limitations. The statute of limitations is not the same as the ex post facto doctrine in the Constitution, which is a certain amount of time in which to bring a criminal complaint can't be revived. Civil claims can be revived. So that's point number one. Point number two is all of these policies – remember, before 1915 – All of these policies had what's called a forum selection clause, which determines if you have a dispute with the company, you must go to such and such a place and apply such and such a law to the dispute. And what did some of these uh, policies that you had? Two predominant – we're just focusing on your life right now. They had two predominant um, venues. Where were they? France and England. So as and now this is what we learned historically at the time that if you were an Armenian living in the rural Ottoman Empire before 1915 and you had a dispute with your insurance company New York Life a US based company you would first of all have to get yourself out of your village now Armenians weren't allowed to own horses so the best they could do is find a donkey you weren't also alone allowed to own any weapons 
And then you would have to get yourself to usually a train station to make your way to Istanbul, which at the time was called Constantinople. And then once you got to Constantinople, you would have to actually get on the Orient Express. And you would have to take the Orient Express to Paris. Now, once you got to Paris, if that was the end of your road in Paris, great. But if you had to litigate in British courts, you would then have to make your way across the channel. And the, uh, the, the, you couldn't take the train, could you, back then? <laughs> there was no channel. There was no channel back then. And then once you got to, to London, uh-huh. you would have to find a solicitor who spoke Armenian because very few Armenians living in the Ottoman Empire before 1915 spoke English. took English classes. Right. So now you'd have to find an Armenian-speaking English solicitor and barrister to present your case in those courts. And I don't know where they would come up with the money to be able to hire those people. Right. So we talk about unconscionability sometimes when we do this podcast and we talk about arbitration clause being unconscionable, forum selection clause being This will fall into the side of unconscionability. And that's exactly what um, Federal District Court Judge Snyder, Christine Snyder, found and that they, the, they were not enforceable. The forum selection clauses were not enforceable, and to the credit of New York Life, they realized that this was an ancient wrong that needed to be made right, and they did make it right. And and how did they make it right? They paid $20 million. That, and that's in the first of the series. Of and cases. most of that money went to charities, and uh, most of it, there was a claims process set up, but remember, a, a, a substantial number, percentage of the population of Armenians were, were completely exterminated. So many, many millions of dollars that were never claimed went to Armenian charities. And uh, that really was the the first case. And it was not just the first insurance case. It was maybe the first case ever on any issue involving the Armenian genocide. Which, in an, again, in and of itself, much like the statute, this entire series of cases, and, and for this to be the first one, is is truly monumental. And I say that from my perspective as a... Armenian-American that grew up hearing tales of this stuff, um, wondering why nothing can be done about it, being frustrated with you know the government of the country of which I am a citizen and born into, and being frustrated by why there's no recourse and nothing has been done. And for this to happen is really, I would say that this is one of the factors that drove me to be a lawyer and because it really, stuff like this proved that some fundamental uh, historic wrong can actually be fixed to some extent and some type of recourse and justice can be brought through the law. So so this is a testament to the American judicial system, um, hard work by dedicated lawyers in, in, in justice in this country. So then we get on to the next case. Mm-hmm. So we had sued this French insurance company, La Union Francaise. And La Union Francaise, same story, same thing, but they had been gobbled up by OXA Financial at the time. By the time we reached out to them, they had been gobbled up. And um, uh, OXA Financial, which is now you know one of the largest financial companies in the world, actually had bought many insurance companies over the time. So now we face not only the forum selection issue, but we also faced a very serious personal jurisdiction issue that we had no jurisdiction over this little insurance company here in the United States. So how do you overcome that? Well, we, we made the ultimate sacrifice and we went to Paris. And we, meaning myself, Mark Garagos, and Shelley Kaufman, who's now a Los Angeles Superior Court judge. And the important part about that was we each had our role. 
So Mark and my role was predominantly to sit in cafes and drink wine and talk about how we could try to solve this problem. Huge personal sacrifice. Huge personal sacrifice. But Shelley, who speaks and reads fluent French, um, was assigned to go do research in the library. So she did the real work. And, well, we were interviewing uh, – we interviewed a number of Armenians while we were there to get historical factors So before anybody thinks it was a complete boondoggle. But she goes to the library, and you have to give her credit because yeah, she – Yeah, Brian's kind of joking. Disclaimer there. There was actual an actual purpose to this. Um, but I trip. give Shelley all the credit because now Judge Kaufman, she went to the public library in, in Paris, and she found a vanity book that La Union Francaise had published – and they had published What's it. What's a vanity book? That's a self-published book. Okay. And they had published it about themselves on the advent of their like hundred promotional material. Yeah. And it was this it was published sometime in the 1920s. And the book goes on to say, remember, this isn't this is the defense, their defense was we have no ties to the United States. We have no ties to California. You can't sue us in the United States or in California. And she goes on to find a chapter in the book that talks about their early 1900s offices that they've opened in the United States in New York and on Van Ness Street in San Francisco. So there's your personal jurisdiction. They were done with personal jurisdiction. There's your personal jurisdiction. And at that point, they agreed to settle the case, and uh, they end up paying, I believe it was $17.5 million. They paid, and the same process was set up. Money went to... um, Victims, families through any, a claims process, through a claims right. process, and money went to charities um, all across uh, all across the world. For both the cases, money got distributed to charities all across the world, um, which was you know a daunting task in and of itself. Right, and then so so more of these cases come down, right? Right. Well, we we get past those cases, and we're feeling very confident. Those went well. Because they went well, because now at this point we're almost $40 million that's been distributed both to heirs and to charities and worldwide recognition. And when we were in France settling these cases on separate trips, uh, international press – and I, I just should mention that the that France has accepted the, the genocide. Germany's accepted the existence of the Armenian genocide. Many countries have. And the foreign press was interviewing us while we were over there because they were so fascinated why the United States has it. So we start bringing other insurance companies. And then we bring uh, a case against a um, German insurance company. And that case, the which surprising to me, a relatively small number of Armenian policies, that case – the Germans fought like crazy, and we win in the district court, and it goes up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal on one single question. And what's the question there? Was whether or not the statute that you read earlier that revived the statute of limitations was unconstitutional as a matter of law because it purported to recognize the Armenian genocide. And the case went to the Ninth Circuit, and I argued at the Ninth Circuit the first time, and I lost on a 2-1 decision. And then sua sponte, that same panel, reversed itself, and I won. And then it went on banc. So the full full set of judges. In the Ninth Circuit. And we lost 11-0. to zero. Uh, holding that the statute was unconstitutional because it used the word genocide and that it invaded the executive, meaning the president of the United States, power 
to set foreign policy and because the president of the United States had never formally recognized the genocide, it was an interference with his authority and the statute was void. And then we took a petition to the United States Supreme Court. And, you know, your chances on any given issue before the United States Supreme Court are very slim. At this time, Obama is president. uh, And the United States Supreme Court actually submitted a demand to the Solicitor General under Obama for for the executive's position on this issue. And the executive actually submitted the, – the solicitor general on behalf of the president submitted a statement that, yes, you would be interfering with the president's authority to set genocide with and, – and because Obama had not said it, the Supreme Court then promptly denied review. And now wouldn't, wouldn't there be – and I think we've talked about this before, you and I um, – wouldn't there be a workaround here to maybe reword the statute – to say, you know, instead of victims of the Armenian genocide, people of Armenian descent that died under Ottoman rule. I think you'd have to water it down even more than that. And yeah. as you know, to the Armenians, anything that looks like it gives in to a rejection of the acceptance of the words genocide is an affront. And so nobody really wanted to do that. We could figure a way to do a workaround, but it wasn't right. But I want to point out one thing before we get off this case. Um, if people remember, and I'm sure they do, the brouhaha about Hillary Clinton's secret emails at the time of the 2016 election, when they were finally released and made public, we found very specific emails that talked about my, me, my case, my argument in the Ninth Circuit between Hillary Clinton and the foreign minister of Turkey. So I remember um, those. Yeah. And, and I think the foreign minister was asking to discuss the case. What can pending. we do about this? What, what are can we, we going to do, do about, about this? this? And I think Hillary Clinton's aide sent Hillary an article that says, this is what he's referring to. This quoted is the me. Case referring to the, these are the lawyers. Yeah. My case, me personally. And we think based upon that, that that's the reason the solicitor general submitted um, a, a viewpoint that they sh- the court to, should not to take the case. Potentially to appease the uh, Turkish government, the, the Republic of Turkey, and, and their foreign minister. So that was heartbreaking. Yeah. And then, yeah. meanwhile, though, we pursued another case, and I want to finish this as, on as up a note as possible. We pursued another case, and we knew this was a long shot because now not just going after insurance policies, we wanted to go after the land grab the stealing of Armenian lands. And we brought that case against the Central Bank of Turkey because they would hold title in these in these properties, uh, and we pursued it. And the case was um, thrown out at the district court level, went to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, just this past year, the Ninth Circuit heard oral argument and ruled on the case and found that the, the statute of limitations had long since run on this issue because it didn't fall under the revival statute. It mentioned, of course, the other case where the revival statute was was ruled unconstitutional. unconstitutional yeah. But I really think that if we're finishing on a positive note here, it's that the panel in the Ninth Circuit recognized the injustice in not recognizing what, what, the— Yeah, I think what blows me away is that the opinion literally starts with— the sentence from 1915 to 1923 in what is often referred to as the Armenian Genocide, the Ottoman Empire massacred, forcibly expelled, 
or marched to death 1.5 million of its Armenian citizens, seizing the property of the dead and deported. So that's how the opinion starts. I think that is probably um, short of recognition by a sitting president that is the highest level um, of a statement we've we've seen historically acknowledging the Armenian genocide. So I think that is the positive note here. It's not a huge surprise that they threw it out um, in the same way and, and while acknowledging the decision in Movsesian. This case, by the way, that we're talking about, the one filed in 2010, is Bakalyan versus the Central Bank of the Republic of Turkey. The decision just came down in August of this year. Um, but yeah, this was, I thought, a very creative way to try to go after um, what the Republic had done, um, you know, going after the banks there for the property and money that was taken and expropriated. I'll, f- I'll finish with this, Sean, is that the point of these cases was to recognize the genocide, was to get something for the genocide. Yeah. And if what we've accomplished is this opinion, is international articles around the world talking about the cases, is obviously money to charities and families, but is also that this went up to the very highest levels of the um, the executive branch and the judicial branch of the United States, I think we accomplished something. I, I think so too, and, and um, it's really – heartwarming to see something like this happen. And even though it didn't go all the way and, you know, achieve full recognition, it's things like this that slowly chip away at the resistance that we've seen uh, through geopolitical pressure coming from the Republic of Turkey. And and hopefully this is, I truly believe, a step in the right direction and a step towards full-blown recognition of the Armenian genocide. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Tell us where they can tell people where they can find us. You can find us at kbklawyers.com, and we'd love to hear feedback from you. We'd love to hear feedback about this issue specifically. If you have any interesting ideas or stories to share, we'd love to hear it. And um, thanks a lot for tuning in.